The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, everybody. I'm Lauren. Um, Today's scripture is from Acts 2, verses 17 and 18, or 14 through 18. Mom? Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Good morning. I'm so excited to be um, with you this morning, and not just to be with you, but to have this opportunity to share with you um, from this place. Um, And as Ellis was saying, I've just loved the songs that were chosen for worship, and music just ministers to me in such a, a powerful way, as I've told you before. Um, I really want to, I would love to take like each song and walk through like the lyrics and connect it um, to each point that we're going to be talking about today. But of course, that would be such a lengthy process. But I challenge you to to do that on your own time. Don't just sing these words. Don't just let them be words, but let them see how they really do come from our scriptures and what we're trying to challenge each other to live out uh, every day in our lives. So thank you, those of you that led us in worship this morning. It was It was powerful. Um, I'm going to start with three words, and then we're going to move from there this morning. So I want you to listen carefully. Unseen, unsought, and uncertain. The reality for many women in today's world are these words. Not for all women but for many women. And I want to very clearly proclaim to you that I don't claim to be up here this morning speaking for all women. That's an impossibility. Um, I definitely felt that pressure as I was preparing to teach this morning with what I chose to say and how I was choosing to say it as I was seeking the Lord. But I know I'm not alone um, in this nagging sense of not measuring up. We hear messages from our world, from our culture, what they expect of us as women. But it doesn't stop there. We also hear the same messages from our church, whatever church you might have grown up in, maybe even this church right now, placing expectations on who you are to be and leaving you with a sense of not measuring up. Every woman who is honest with herself feels it. And it's something something deeper than just the sense of failing at what she does. It's an underlying gut feeling of failing at who she is. Listen to some of these messages that we receive and we speak over ourselves. I am not enough, yet I am too much at the same time. Ladies, any of you, have you ever felt that way? I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. 
not kind enough, not gracious enough, not disciplined enough. It continues on from there. I'm too emotional. I'm too needy. I'm too sensitive. And then the other end of the spectrum, I'm too strong. I'm too opinionated. I'm too messy. I mean, ladies, why is it so hard? And I believe if I could have a one-on-one conversation with each of you, you would agree with me. Why is it so hard to create meaningful friendships and sustain them? And I'm talking about woman to woman. I'm not even talking about the men at the moment. Why is it so hard? We feel unseen, even by those who are closest to us. We feel unsought, that no one has the passion or the courage to pursue us, to get past our messiness, to find the woman who is deep inside. And we feel uncertain. I would say especially in this age and time, uncertain what it even means to be a woman, uncertain what it truly means to be feminine. So the message from a driven culture, right, ladies, is try harder, try harder. But unfortunately, we hear the same message in a different way from our churches today of this box that we should fit in. Proverbs 31, ring a bell. Try harder, ladies. Live up to all these expectations. A woman that probably didn't really exist. These were, in my opinion, the best descriptions of every woman that Solomon chose to marry. Think about that for a moment. So it's brought us to many questions. So what determines what we believe about women and the church? This is a question we will attempt to journey through today. And there's so much to cover on this topic. I have lots of research that I could walk you through and would be willing to do a follow-up on this teaching if that is desired. But after much prayer and time and late nights, as you see these bags under my eyes, the Lord led me to really simplify what I shared today. So I ask that you listen not with a critical ear, but with an open heart. And instead of asking, why didn't she talk about this? And why didn't she talk about that? Focus on what it is that the Lord has asked me to share today. And rather than asking, what should a woman do? What is her role? I believe it would be far more helpful for us to ask, what is a woman? What is her design? And why did God place woman in our midst? We must go back to her beginnings, to the story of Eve. And yes, even though we have heard this story many, many times, most of us, for those of us that have grown up in the church, creation is one of the very first stories you're told. You have a little book of the creation story, and it's simplified. But I'm asking that you listen to it again, and as I said, with an open heart. It definitely bears repeating, because we clearly haven't learned its lessons. For if we had, men would treat women much, much differently. And women, we would view ourselves in a far better light. The story of the treatment of women down through the ages is not a noble history. It has noble moments in it for sure, and this is 
in, in the um, light of the world as well as in the capital C church. But taken as a whole, women have endured what seems to be a special hatred ever since we left Eden. It's important for us to remember that we cannot make the mistake in believing that each other is the enemy. I want you to turn to your neighbor and just say to them, you are not the enemy. Thank you for participating in that. Now listen more closely. This is a little bit more of a powerful statement and not meant to be offensive. But ladies, it's important we don't make the mistake in believing that men are the enemy. Certainly, I'm being careful. I'm full of tears is what you're feeling. Men have had a hand in this. Many of you are sitting here and have personal experience of how a man has hurt you in a deep, deep way. So not only do we know about and hear about what's going on in the world and how men have had a part in that, for many of us it's very personal. Maybe even it comes from our fathers or our brothers. But men are not the enemy And they will have a reckoning before their maker. But we will not understand this story. Or ladies, you will not understand your story until we begin to see the actual forces behind this. And I reference to you Ephesians 6.12, which most of us would know. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against each other, but against principalities, against powers, against darkness. So as I get us started this morning, let's pray together um, before we jump into the rest of what I have to share. Father, I thank you for my family that's seated here in front of me, for my brothers and my sisters. God, we thank you that you have won the victory and that though the evil one is still seeking to devour running rampant in our world today, in our families today, and even in our church today, we know and believe and claim that you have the victory. And so we rest in that today. Father, open our eyes and ears as we listen this morning. Open our hearts and show us how we need to walk out of here differently because of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So our question, what determines what we believe about women and the church? In order to answer this question today, we're going to go back to the garden where woman was created to see God's design and his original intent of woman. And at the same time, along with, we're going to, we need a basic foundation and understanding of how we read the Bible. It's so interesting to me that we're okay with giving our children Bibles that are called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Yes, I brought this up as part of my teaching. Uh, But we as grown-ups tend to complicate this great big God story as we proclaim to children when we teach it to them um, by how we read the Bible. We read it in many different ways, which I'm not going to get into all of them right now, but we read to retrieve for information, for morsels of law. We'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that don't we? 
We also read through our tradition. It's impossible to read the Bible without our upbringing and the church tradition that we grew up in to not affect how we read the Bible. That tradition would also include those of you who have not been raised in a church environment. You have been discipled by the culture that, and generation that you've grown up in. This has determined how you, quote, read the Bible. And I want to challenge us with a different way this morning. Give me a little bit of leeway. Again, not a critical listening, but an understanding of where we're trying to go. I want us to grow down in our faith this morning. Yes, I said grow down. I want us to look at the scriptures with a childlike faith because we need to learn how to read the Bible as story. This is something that's going to be taught in a later series, um, how to read the Bible, like for all it's worth. So we'll be coming back to that um, because I think it's something important that all of us can grow in. But for this morning, I want to emphasize learning how to read the Bible as story. We can't possibly understand what God intends for woman and the church unless we do so. We will see throughout the Bible as story that it moves from oneness to otherness back to oneness, God's original intent. The Bible isn't actually mainly about you and what you should be doing, believe it or not. That is a part of it, but it's about God and what he has done. Again, this is something simple in how we share with children the purpose of God's word, of the Bible. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story. We can't possibly pick and choose what we're going to read and what we're not going to read. So let's dive into the big God story in order to answer our question, and let's start at the very beginning. So the scene begins, creation, where the design was oneness. The scene begins in darkness, darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters, Genesis 1, verse 2. The breathless moment in the dark before the first notes of a great symphony or concert, a play or an epic film, all is formless, empty and dark. And then a voice speaks, let there be light. Genesis 1 verse 3. Now I have to say, I'm going to pause for a moment. I'm looking out at your faces and many of you really are saying to me, yes, Ginger, I have heard this story so many times. Again, I will repeat, please listen as I tell it more in a story format with fresh ears and a fresh heart for what God has for us this morning. Continued in the story, Genesis 1-6, and suddenly there is light, pure light, a magnificent light. Its radiance will enable us to see now what is unfolding. The voice speaks again and again. Let there be a vault in the midst of the waters and let it divide water from water, verse 6. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place so that the dry land will appear. Genesis 1, verse 9. Creation in its early stages begins like any great work of art with uncut stone or a mass of clay, a rough sketch, or a blank sheet of music. Formless and empty, as Genesis 1-2 has it. 
then God begins to fashion the raw materials he has made like an artist, working with the stone or sketch or page before him, light and dark, heaven and earth, land and sea, it's all beginning to take shape. With passion and with brilliance, our God, the creator, works in large, sweeping movements on a grand scale. Great realms are distinguished from one another and established, and then he moves back over them for a second pass as he begins to fill in color and detail and finer lines. Let the earth grow grass, plants, and trees bearing fruit, we see in Genesis 1.11. Let there be lights in the vault of the heavens, Genesis 1, verse 14. Let the waters swarm with the swarm of living creatures and let fowl fly over the earth, Genesis 1.20. Forest and meadow burst forth, tulips and pine trees and moss-covered stones. And notice, the masterpiece, it's becoming more intricate and more intimate. Stay with me. He fills the night sky with a thousand million stars, and he names them. He sets them in constellations. And into our world, God opens his hands, and the animals spring forth. Imagine that. Myriads of birds in every shape and size and song take wing. Hawks and herons and pelicans. All the creatures of the sea leap into it. Whales and dolphins and fish of a thousand colors and designs. Horses, gazelles, buffalo thunder across the plains, running like the wind. It is more astonishing than we could possibly imagine. From water and stone to pomegranate and rose to leopard and nightingale, creation ascends in beauty. The plot is thickening. The symphony is building and swelling higher and higher to a crescendo. No wonder the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, as we see in Job 38.7. A great hurrah goes up from the heavens. The greatest of all masterpieces is emerging. What was once formless and empty is now overflowing with life and color and sound and movement in a thousand variations. Most importantly, notice that each creature is more intricate and noble and mysterious than the last. I mean, a cricket is amazing, but it can't compare to a wild horse. Think about it. That's my opinion. Yes, my opinion. But something truly astonishing takes place. God sets his own image, which this morning we're going to refer to as an icon, On the earth. He creates a being like himself. He creates a son. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, which is really called in the the language the Adam, became a living being. We see that in Genesis 2-7. It is nearing the end of the sixth day the end of the creator's great labor, as Adam steps forth, the image, the icon of God, the triumph of his work. He alone is pronounced the son of God. Nothing in creation even comes close. He is magnificent. Men, do you hear that this morning? 
This isn't all about women. Men. Man was and is magnificent. Truly, the masterpiece seems complete. And yet, the master says that something is not good, not right. Something is missing. And that something is Eve. We see it in Scripture. And the Lord God casts a deep slumber on the human, on the Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord God built the rib that he had taken from the human, the Adam, into a woman. And he brought her to the human. So I'm going to take a little break in the story just to make sure that we're on the same page to understand where we have covered We see in Genesis 2 that God chose to split the Adam, the human. He chose to split him into two. Maybe you've never thought of it that way. Into an ish, which is the word for man, and isha, which is the word for woman. So if we were to look at it again through this light, Genesis 2.23 would read, She shall be called isha. For she was taken out of Ish. Does that make sense? So the choice to make the Adam, the human being, as an icon or an image, and then split him into two, male and female, is profoundly important for the understanding of the story of the Bible. Let's look at this diagram We can summarize Genesis 1-2 that God wanted Adam to enjoy what the Trinity had eternally enjoyed and what the Trinity continues to enjoy, perfect communion and mutuality with an equal. God creates the Adam. Then he splits the lonely Adam into two, Ish and Isha, who are now in perfect communion with each other. And then when they're brought together by God, they form one flesh. So we see that in in Genesis 2, Adam stood alone. As Adam sorts through all the animals, he was was without communion with an equal. And so to make the need for communion and love abundantly clear, God openly reveals that this aloneness is not what God intends for Adam. God wants the Adam to be two, in order to experience the glories and the communion of one, of mutuality and of love. Now, I can't read your minds, but I can imagine that many of you are thinking, well, hold on, Ginger, I'm not married. How does this apply to me? This sounds like a passage that's meant for a man and woman who become husband and wife. I want to remind you that this was the beginning of the world where God created mankind, human, humans, male and female. He created them. And this is God's original intent for how we are to interact with each other, not just within a marriage relationship. So let's get back to our story. Isha, woman, in one last flourish... Creation comes to a finish with Eve. She is breathtaking. And listen to this. Woman fills a place in the world that nothing and no one else can fill. 
Let that rest on you for a moment. Isha, woman is created because she fills a place in the world that nothing and no one else can fill. The story of Eve holds such rich treasures for us to discover. The essence and purpose of a woman is unveiled here in the story of her creation. She has a crucial role to play. And remember, she also bears the image or the icon of God, as we see in Genesis 1.26. But in a way that only the feminine can speak. So what can we learn from her? God wanted to reveal something about himself. So he gave us Eve. Have you ever thought of it that way? Women? About why you were created? Eve is created because things were not right without her. Something was not good, Genesis 2.18. It is not good for the man to be alone. So think of it. The world is young and completely unstained. Adam is yet in his innocence and full of glory. He walks with God and nothing stands between them. They share something that none of us has ever known, only longed for, an unbroken friendship untouched by sin. Can I get an amen? Yet something is not good. Something is missing. What could it possibly be? It's Eve. It's woman. It's femininity. Wow. Talk about significance. And while Eve is created relational to her core, that is not all that she is essential for. Back in Genesis, when God sets the image bearers, the icons on the earth, he gives them their mission. Then God said, let us make the Adam, the human beings, in our image, the Econ, econ, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created the Adam. Yes, I'm using these words again. I'm wanting you to get them. In his own econ, in the econ of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and conquer it and hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and every beast that crawls upon the earth. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So we could call this our human mission, church family, to be all and do all God sent us here to do. And notice, the mission is to be fruitful and conquer and hold sway. It's given both to Adam and to Eve. And God said to them, Eve is standing right there when God gives the world over to us. She has a vital role to play. She is a partner in this great adventure. So listen, all that human beings were intended to do here on earth, we were intended to to do together. All that human beings were intended to do here on the earth, all the creativity and the exploration, all the battle and rescue and nurture, we were intended to do together as one. 
In fact, not only is Eve needed, but she is desperately needed. When God creates Eve, he actually calls her an Ezer Konegdo. Yes, another strange word that I'm going to break down for you. In Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I shall make him an Ezer Konegdo. Hebrew scholars have spent years translating the book of Genesis, and it has been said that this phrase is notoriously difficult to translate. Um, you've probably read it in your Bible translation um, with the word help meet. That's the one that's most often used um, as helper or companion. But somehow, these translations feel a bit wimpy and disappointing and not quite cutting it for what seems God's intent for Eve, the Isha, and her creation. It seems a little closer when they say sustainer beside him. And let me explain to you why. I'm not just speaking out of my own opinion. I actually have description of the word that was chosen to use and how it fits in our understanding. Ezer Konegdo. The word Ezer is used only 20 other places in the entire Old Testament. I would challenge you to do a, uh, a scripture, a, a hunt for this word in your scriptures. Find it in all of the passages and see the context which, with which it shows up. Because in every other instance, the person being described, the Ezer, is God himself. Powerful, right? The person that you need to come through for you desperately. My favorite passage that has this word in it is Psalms 121, 1 and 2, which I do not have on a slide for you, but it says... I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my ezer, my help, come from? My ezer, my help comes from the, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Most of these contexts, if you were to do a search and read for yourself, you would see that the contexts are about life and death. And God is your only hope, your Ezer. And if he is not there beside you, you are in real trouble. So a better translation of Ezer would be a lifesaver. Some of you might have noticed. I always bring a little cheese when I'm on the stage, but it's not meant to be too cheesy. I appreciate your laugh. But seriously, we often need visuals. Ladies, Ishas, image bearers of our God, you are given the word help, Ezer, the same word that is used to describe how we desperately need our God, who is our help, our lifesaver. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. Connecto is a compound word which means like in front of, alongside, a counterpart, or opposite to. It's not really the word suitable, also, is what we see in many of our translations. We're the same but different. So it's like 
Adam is saying, you're here, you're in front of me, but you are my equal. And this lines up to how woman is created. She is taken from the rib. She comes alongside man. She actually defends him. This word ezer can also be referred to as a battle term. Listen to this. I love this piece of information that I learned in my research. This is why in Jewish weddings the bride circles the groom because she is like the guard. So Adam needs an ezer connecto that is like him but opposite him that can go on mission with him. And yes, I just use another marriage illustration, but that is not where our design as women stops. It's not just about who you are once you are married to a man, to an ish. It's about who you are from your original design as a woman. So if all this oneness and harmony and beauty was happening in the garden, what happened I'm going to explain to you, again, in some of the strange verbiage about these cracked icons, how our oneness was distorted and what happened was an otherness that was created. Something happened which we've heard about, again, many, many times. We call it the fall, just in short terms. But we still don't fully understand it. We don't. Or we would see it playing itself out every day of our lives. We would be able to recognize how it's playing out in our everyday lives and in our relationships. We would also see the chances given, listen to this, the chances given to us every day to reverse what happened, to fight for what God intended. In Genesis 3, Eve with Adam chooses to do what God said not to do. As a result, they crack the econ. And again, what does econ mean? Image. They crack the image, and they jeopardize the oneness that God intended. What we learn in Genesis 3 is that it is sin that distorts the oneness. So back to our story. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the creatures the Lord God had made. Really? He asked the woman, did you really say you must not eat of any fruit of the garden? Of course we may eat, the woman told him. It's only the fruit from the tree at the center of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said we must not eat it or even touch it or we will die. You won't die, the serpent hissed. God knows that your eyes will be opened when you eat it. You will become just like God, knowing everything both good and evil. The woman was convinced. The fruit looked so fresh and delicious, and it would make her so wise. So she ate some of the fruit. She also gave some to Adam, who was with her, not in another place of the garden, let me point out, with her. And then he ate it too, Genesis 3, 1 through 6. So the woman was convinced. Convinced of what? This morning, this is a good question to ask ourselves, especially you ladies. I ask you to look into your own hearts and ask and, and try to figure out, what have you been convinced of? Eve was convinced that God was holding out on her. Any of you feel that? Have you been convinced of that lie? 
Eve was convinced that in order to have the best possible life, she must take matters into her own hands. And so she did. Eve was convinced that she could not trust her creator's heart toward her. And Adam, he doesn't exactly ride to her rescue. And I'm not going to spend much time on this, but again, in the, in the scripture it tells us he was with her. And that word that is translated literally means he's as close as her elbow. He was close. We now see this play out today. Fallen Eve's and fallen Adam's. What was once harmony and togetherness has become the opposite. What are some words that you can think of, and you can just shout out a few of them, that's opposite of oneness and togetherness? Division. Discord. Say? Brokenness. Yes. The first impact of rebelling against God, according to the Bible, is experience within the self. I want us to listen closely to this. In Adam and Eve's self-consciousness, the Bible tells us, it says that they are ashamed of themselves because of their nakedness. You can look at Genesis 3-7 and compare it to Genesis 2-25. Fallen Eve and fallen Adam. The text then continues in helping us see this distorting of oneness in that Adam and Eve are now hiding from God. And they act as if nothing has happened. Genesis 3, 8 and 9. Third, we see their oneness with one another has been impacted by the sin, by the way that they began to treat each other. They, they began to blame one another. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Fourth, God must open the gates into the real world, not the perfection of the garden, the real world, and send the two cracked icons his cracked images that he would still claim as his, though cracked, sending them out east of Eden, chapter 3, 21 through 24. So listen to this, the fourfold relationships of oneness that was previously enjoyed in the glorious oneness of love is now completely cracked. Listen to this. They are at odds with God, they are at odds with self, and they are at odds with one another and with the world. The oneness that was intended not just for each other, but for God themselves and the world has been cracked. Oneness has now become an otherness. In fact, Genesis 3 predicts something that tells the story of human relationships, all human relationships, as I continue to say, not just between husbands and wives. Even in, this, in, even in this word, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Chapter 3, verse 16. You see, instead, the desire to rule rises in the human heart because the oneness is cracked. Instead of loving one another as they love themselves, they will now desire to climb over the other and on top of the other in order to control and dominate. Fallen Adam and fallen Eve, struggling to live in harmony together, serving alongside one another. But I think one of the things we fail to understand and realize is that this is not a curse as if this must happen forever and always. 
We don't have to say that's just the way it is. We can understand what God's original intent was and is for us in relationships and fight for that oneness that God originally intended. I'm not going to take as much time as we walk through the rest of the Bible, and I know you're going to say thank you for that, but the entire rest of the Bible is about turning his images, his icons that are bent on otherness back to um, icons that are basking in oneness with God, with self, with others, and the world. This otherness problem, sin, is what the gospel fixes. And the story of the Bible is the story of God's people struggling over and over and over again with this otherness problem while searching for the oneness. How many of you felt that? You're struggling through this otherness problem, but yet deep down in your heart, you desire to live out and understand this oneness. So let's move to what God created, a covenant community, and talk quickly about the struggle for oneness. Here too many of us in our understanding of Scripture and reading the Bible, we want to, um, we want to jump straight to the Gospels and to Romans 3. We think that the plot of the story is creation, fall, and redemption. Those are very important, but there's actually a very important part in the middle of it. It is the creation, the fall, and then covenant community. Page after page of community in the Bible, in the story of the Bible, as the context in which our wonderful redemption takes place. If reading the Bible as a story teaches us one thing, it teaches us that it is the otherness that others that God seems to care most about. Now, that's a strong statement, but I want you to think about it. Otherness of the self and with God is the assumption, and that's important, that's foundational. But if you were to break down the story of the Bible, what is most of the story of the Bible spent on? Our otherness problem, our struggle with otherness. If reading the Bible, I'm so sorry, let me start again. Uh, So what does God do after the fall in the story? By Genesis 12, we see that God forms a covenanted community, and this covenanted community will shape the rest of the Bible. Listen to this. It's very important. God's idea of redemption is community-shaped. This is why this is important in reference to the family of Gallery Church. God's idea of redemption is community-shaped. Oneness cannot be achieved just between God and self. Rather, oneness involves God, self, and others, and the world around us. There are pages and pages in scriptures about this, in the scriptures, how Israel is faring, how Judah is faring, about kings and prophets and worship centers, and about how Israel longed for the Messiah when oppressed by Rome. But again, God's original intent, his design, something happens. Something is terribly wrong with God's covenant people. They never truly achieve the design that God has for them. That will not happen until Jesus comes and he will bring the oneness. So that's where we move into the story of Scripture. Christ, the perfect econ, oneness is restored. Everything God designed for icons, his images, is actually lived out by Jesus. 
which is why it's so important that we look to scriptures to see how we should be living out in our lives. Every, everything that icons are to do comes by being in Christ or by becoming one with Jesus Christ. Listen to this passage from Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The story of the Bible takes the otherness of cracked icons, the cracked images, and directs us towards Jesus Christ, in whom alone we can find our oneness. The fact that there is neither Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female is only possible because of our oneness in Christ. Through Jesus' incarnation, his death, and his resurrection, he puts an end to the otherness by creating the oneness that the story of the Bible has been yearning for and that you and I yearn for. And now, the only need left is the power to create the oneness, which is precisely what Pentecost is all about. And that's where we started with our scripture reading today. So let's look at it again. Acts 2, verses 17 through 18. Lauren, sorry, babe. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. God sends the promised spirit of the new covenant so that the covenant community can be empowered image bearers, empowered icons, people who are restored to oneness with God, with self, with others, and the world. I believe that the most decisive impact of Pentecost isn't what most people guess when they hear of Pentecost, the speaking in tongues. I believe it truly is the community formation that happens, the oneness through the power that is brought back together where the gift of the Spirit is made clear. We see it in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and I'm not going to read all of that, but look at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. We want to know how to accomplish this as a church family and covenant with each other. This is how. Figuring out how to move from otherness back to oneness with the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. Not just a few of them. And we're not talking about a small group of people. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This is the story that the whole Bible was designed to tell. Otherness overturned, thank you Jesus, and oneness restored. It happens in the covenant community that is one with Christ. Brothers and sisters, isn't that our goal as we walk together in this family? It's important, though, to notice, again, that the focus of the oneness in the Bible is oneness with others. 
you've heard it say, you've heard it say, you've heard Ellis say that often people will say, yeah, I'm, I'm good with God. I'm just struggling with so-and-so. But I dare ask you, as he does, how can you be good with God and not good with so-and-so? They're all connected. It's so very important. Once oneness is restored between God and the self, listen what happens. It begins to work out itself with oneness with others and this world. It's impossible for that not to happen. These words of Paul reveal the plan. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 When we the self are at one with God, this leads to oneness, reconciliation with others in this world. We like to use the word reconciliation, or maybe we would say that that's like a hot topic, a word that comes up a lot in this generation, especially within the church, the need for reconciliation. And it's often referenced to the races. And most of us would agree that's something that we should be striving towards. So why can't we, why don't we apply that in our relationships with each other, with men and with women? Why can't we see that same principle as needed to be applied? He has given us the ministry of reconciliation because he has made us one in him. So listen to this, and I'm wrapping up. This means that fallen Eves, which ladies, that's all of us in the room, we're all fallen Eves, and redeemed, and the fallen Adams, I'm sorry, all of us, the fallen Eves and all the fallen Adams, we have to practice working together as redeemed Eves and redeemed Adams. We have been restored, we have been given a new identity. We have to work it out, walking in this new identity that he has given us. But we don't often translate our understanding and our actions for, well, how is this representing fallen Eve or for men? How is this representing the fallen Adam? And again, I say, why is it that we want to fight so hard in other areas of the brokenness of the world that are a result of the fall? Think for a moment. What are some of the results of the fall? I don't know about you, but there are weeds in my flower beds. And I don't like to leave them there. I work hard. Well, maybe my family does or my son does. <laughs> at fighting against those weeds. That's not God's original intent when he created the world. How about diseases? Some of you work in research labs trying to discover and find ways to fight against disease that is also a part of the brokenness of this world. And I could go on and on naming things. I'm sure some things are coming to your mind. So again, I ask, why don't we work at figuring out how to live in harmony, in relationship, togetherness, men and women, men to men, Eve to Eve, in our friendships, as God intended. It's hard work, but it is worth it. Some of you might have been expecting from me this morning some discussions on Miriam and Deborah or even Huldah from the Old Testament. 
or Priscilla and Phoebe or Junia from the New Testament. You might have expected terms like egalitarian versus complementarian or explanations of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. But we didn't go there today on purpose because we believe that on the simplest foundational level that we can see our Father in Heaven's vision for how men and women are to, are to interact with each other throughout the story of the Bible. We've called the series Harmony, which I love. My husband isn't very musical, so he hasn't really tried to explain harmony. And I'm actually not going to because there are some of you who are much more knowledgeable in the harmony, in, in understanding musical terms than I am, and I'm sure I would not explain it correctly. But this is a definition of what harmony is from the, Bi- from the Bible, from the dictionary. And I don't know about you, as I said, I love music, but when you hear harmony in music, isn't there something powerful to it? Something even deeper, it causes you to pause. It's not just the beauty of the song or what's being sung. It just creates this beautiful, these layers of the point of what's being sung or played. Harmony, accord, these are actually synonyms. Sorry, it's not the definition. Accord, order, understanding, peace, agreement, so on and so on. Sympathy, which I love, is a part of the passage of First Peter that we try to talk to you guys about having sympathy for each other. Um, like-mindedness, again, from that passage, First Peter 3.8. It's important for us to understand what harmony is and the beauty that can come from it when we learn to walk in it together. Because what we see throughout Scripture is not what we want to point out as egalitarian or complementarian. What we want to focus on is a better way that's called harmony. Better together. Better together. So women, our true places as women in God's story... They are diverse, as diverse and unique as the wildflowers of the field. No two quite look the same, which is why I can't represent all women up here. But we all share certain spheres of influences to which we are called to be an ezer. And what is an ezer? A lifesaver. Not just a help, like, oh, I need a little help. Will you give me some help? A lifesaver something desperately needed. Remember, it was very carefully the word chosen to describe who we are, women. God could have chosen, and I almost don't want to say this, but I'm going to, okay? God could have chosen a word that meant female servant, but he didn't. He chose the word Ezra, which is also the word used to describe him as lifesaver, as rescuer in our lives. Some of you need to come as we move to a time of closing out our gathering, and you need to take some of these lifesavers as a remembrance of who you are, who you were designed to be, the irreplaceable role that you've been called to play. The church the fellowship of Christ, it can be messy. 
because it's made of, of Ishas and Ishas, and we're so different. We're trying to understand what our roles are, what God has called us to be. But remember, it's because it's opposed by the enemy. He wants nothing more than to keep us mixed up and in disunity and discord with one another. The more we step towards harmony, he's going to work even harder to bring discord and disunity. But ladies, here you have an irreplaceable role to play. We lead and we serve not as fallen Eve, but as redeemed and restored Eve. And men, thank you so much for listening intently today. I pray that the Lord brought to mind some women in your lives that maybe you need to take some time to affirm. But you too have an irreplaceable role to play. The point of this morning is not to put the women on display and talk about the women. Remember, it's about us serving together. We need each other. Men, you have an irreplaceable role to play. But... You must strive, as we do, to lead and serve, not as fallen Adam, but as restored and redeemed Adam. Psalm 133.1 says, How wonderful it is, how pleasant for God's people, God's family, brothers and sisters, to live together in harmony. So, brothers and sisters, the next time you find yourself in a conflict or contention or discord with someone whether outside the church or inside the church, because remember, we're always on display of God's greatness, no matter who we're interacting with. Ask yourself, am I living right now as fallen Adam or fallen Eve? Or am I looking at the situation and responding as a redeemed Adam and a redeemed Eve? Because remember, Jesus offers us the opportunity for harmony, the opportunity to be better together, that we lay down our power in service of others. And two more questions. Where in my life am I living out the otherness and not the oneness? Take some time. Sit before the Lord. Ask that question. And God's perfect image has been cracked. You and I, we've been cracked, but this is not the end of our story. God restores, and he wants us to live as the restored Adams and the restored Eves that he intended us to be.